I want to welcome all of you that watch every week online as we continue our series titled Over Christmas. I love the Christmas season. It's my favorite time of the year. And I love and never get tired of preaching on the coming of Jesus, the one whose coming literally has divided history and united men. So uh, I'm excited about what we're going to share this morning because the first thing I'm going to do uh, is give some awesome marital advice to young husbands. There's something about the Christmas season that brings a lot of families together. In fact, even this weekend, Jamie uh, has some of her family staying with us and it's been sweet. And I'm reminded over 30 years ago, sitting in a Bible class in college, and I got some of the best marriage advice I would ever get. And I wasn't even married at the time. The professor said, now I can tell you the first fight you're going to have when you get married. It's going to be on where you spend the first Christmas. And I can tell you who's going to win. You're going to go to her house. And he was a prophet because that's exactly what happened in our marriage. Our first major battle was who are we spending the first Christmas with? And we wound up with Jamie's family. So I'm getting you new husbands off to a good start because what you've got to understand, there is great wisdom in learning when to be overruled. Because sometimes the person that you think is in charge isn't really the person with the power. That reminds me of one of my favorite stories Laura Bush tells about her husband. So when uh, her husband, 43, was in office, they went to Houston to visit his parents, uh, 41, and Barbara, who's always been one of my favorite people. Not many women can say, I married one president and gave birth to another. So 43 gets up early to go get some coffee. At six in the morning... But when he goes into the living room, his parents are already up. They're drinking coffee and reading the morning paper. So he grabs part of the paper, sits on the couch with his coffee, and puts his feet up on the coffee table. And his mother turns to him and says, George, get your feet off of my table. Her husband says, Barbara, for goodness sake, he is the president of the United States. And she says, I don't care. I don't want his feet on my table. (laughs) And the president took his feet and put them on the floor. Because the person that might seem to be in charge isn't always the person with the power. And that's one of the big messages of Christmas. Because Matthew starts the story of the birth of Jesus with this verse in chapter 2. He was born in Bethlehem in Judea, and Matthew wants you to know it was during the reign of King Herod. So there was no debate the first Christmas who had the power. Jesus had a manger, but Herod had the throne. That's how everybody saw the world that first Christmas. And that's how most people see the world in every Christmas since. Is we have a baby and we have a manger and we have a few uh, days of celebrating the fact that he came. But then we got to get back to the business of dealing with who has the real power. And who sits on the real throne and who's really in charge. But when you understand what Christmas is really subtly saying, that whole perspective gets over. Rule. That's the premise behind this series, that when you look down on Christmas from a higher perspective, then you have a way to look over life in a new way. So last time we saw that 
you can be overshadowed by the story of Jesus. Next week, we're going to understand how you can be overjoyed by his coming. But what I want to do today is I want to challenge the idea that the people in charge are really the people with the power. Because what Christmas is really declaring that many folks miss is this. There is a new king in town. Because Jesus came to take over. He wasn't born just to redeem, but to rule. This was declared the night he was born. The angel said to the shepherds, I've got good news. In the town of David, a savior has been born and he is savior. He did come to redeem. But then the angel said, he is Christ the Lord. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is not a name. It's a title. It means anointed one. It means Messiah. It means king. We don't call this season Jesus must. We call it Christ must. It is the season to welcome a new king. And no one realized that sooner than the man whose rule was threatened. So Matthew continues, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one, notice, who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They weren't looking for a kid to admire. They were looking for a king to adore. And the reason he was born a king is because he was king before he was born. And they thought this was good news. But Herod didn't. Verse 3 says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with them. This is the second time now Matthew's called him King Herod. And all Jerusalem was disturbed for a good reason. Because whenever Herod was upset, bad things were about to happen. Herod was a powerful king. He built some mighty impressive buildings. He kept order for over 40 years in a hard to rule part of the world. The Romans appreciated that about him. But even Rome admitted he was one paranoid nutcase. Because Herod was constantly on the lookout for a threat to his throne. So much so, he murdered his wife and her mother. He had his oldest son assassinated and then had two more boys put to death. Because Herod governed by one simple rule, crush the opposition. And so when he found out there was a new king, this was not good news. And what he did when he sent those soldiers to Bethlehem exposes the myth that some have that Jesus is a moralist. He's a great teacher. He didn't send those soldiers out there to kill a life coach. They were out there to get rid of a threat to the throne. They were out to murder a potential king. 
Because he understood that one had been born who could establish a dominion that would ultimately preempt his own. And that's what everyone who really gets Christmas understands. Jesus has come to take over. The heart will always be a battleground for kings. The heart is always a battlefield where the question of who's in charge, whose dominion is recognized, is going to be waged. An unregenerate human nature will passionately defend self-sovereignty. That's why most people like Christmas more than Easter. Because Christmas, you can look at a little baby who can't demand anything, and then when it's over, put him back in the attic and get about your business of running your life the way you want to run it. Easter's a little different. A man comes out of a tomb and ascends and sits at the right hand of God, that's a little different. So we'd rather talk about Christmas and keep Jesus on the shelf. But wise men and women understand that Christmas is a call to be overruled. And so in this story that you've heard all your life, I want to show you some subtle hints of how in charge Jesus really is. For example, this story tells us that Jesus rules over the creation. Did you notice that the Magi called this astronomical phenomenon his star? We saw a star that belongs to him and is doing what he wants. And later, after they met with Herod, it says in verse 9, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them. Until it stopped over the place where the child was. This is no ordinary star. It moves. It shines its light specifically on locations. This is a divinely appointed travel guide. This is creation doing what creation was created to do. To point to the king. Think about it. The gospels are full of stories where creation does amazing things to lift up Jesus. And so if Jesus wants to get to the other side of a lake and he needs water to become a bridge, he just gives the word and walks on water. And if he wants to make a point to his disciples, he just gives the word and fish swim into a net. And if he wants to make a point to the people, He can just give the word and withered limbs and blind eyes and leprous skin become whole. And if he just wants to bless some friends at a wedding, he gives the word and water becomes non-alcoholic wine. And Jesus (laughs) is always showing he is king of creation. And creation is always responding because it recognizes its maker. Colossians 1.16 says, through his power, all things were made. Now, John doesn't start the Christmas story like Matthew and Luke. He starts it this way. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And then verse 3 says that through him, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. It's because I want you to understand 
that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he wasn't coming just to redeem everyone. He was coming to redeem everything. Because all creation is under his throne and belongs to him. And right now, creation's unhappy. Paul has this strange metaphor in Romans 8 about creations in labor. And it is groaning for its redemption. Because right now, creation isn't all it could be. It's under the curse that came And it's decaying, not because creation isn't good, but because man wasn't good. And creation is eagerly waiting for the return of the king. So it can become again what it was created to be. But even as it is now, creation is constantly pointing us to the maker. Creation is constantly singing the song of the king. Literally 1,000 years ago, the ruler of England was a Danish king named Canute. And he got tired of people telling him how great he was. So one day, he had his throne placed on the beach, and he sat on it. And he ordered the tide not to come in. And a few hours later, the tide was all the way up to his throne. And they say he got up, took his crown off, put it on a statue of Jesus and never wore it again. Because creation only recognizes one king. It declares that Jesus is Lord. But it's not the only voice doing so. Because Jesus also rules over the Bible. Notice that when the wise men needed more revelation, they came to Herod And they asked, and Herod and the leaders of the Jews knew exactly where to look. It says in verse 4 that Herod called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come, notice, a ruler. Who will shepherd my people, Israel. So the star got them to Jerusalem. But the scriptures got them to Bethlehem. And yet the scriptures did not get the experts in the scriptures to Bethlehem. One group travels 1,000 miles to meet the new king. And the second group won't travel five because they don't want to be overruled. And so they found the answer in the Bible, but they missed the word. And this spirit would dominate Even 30 years later, when Jesus would say to the teachers and the experts in the scriptures in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. The Bible is never the end. The Bible is the means to the end because Jesus is the king and the Lord even of the scripture. 
And so the light that comes from the Bible is meant to guide us to Jesus. And this wonderful thing happens. The Bible leads us to Jesus, who then leads us to better understand the Bible. There's a wonderful story in Luke 24 after he's raised from the dead. And he meets these disciples on the road to Emmaus who were all confused. And it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he showed them all over the Old Testament how the story of his life had been pictured. Because Jesus is all over the Bible, because Jesus rules the Bible. And when you read the Bible that way, you see it. I love the story of the little boy who went to the zoo, and he'd never seen a peacock. And he's staring, at it, and the bird suddenly has his amazing featherage just come out, and the boy's eyes get this big. And that night, Daddy says, how'd you like the zoo? He said, Dad, you won't believe it. I saw a Christmas tree come out of a chicken. And that's what happens. When you read Scripture, you start to see the king, and he starts to show up all over the place, even where you don't expect it. Now, you can know a lot of Bible and not know the king. But when you seek the king, you start to see the king on every page. And your search of the word will help you see who really has the last word. Because Jesus rules over the enemy. And by the way, this was predicted all the way back in the third chapter of the Bible. After men sin and God curses the creation. God speaks to the serpent. And God says, now from her seed, the woman... One will come. You'll strike his heel. He will crush your head. What's God doing? He's declaring war. God is saying to the enemy, I'm not going to let you damn my creation. I'm not going to let you rule illegitimately over my realm. I'm not going to let you govern my children for eternity. So God declared war. God announced that he was going to launch a counter-offensive against the illegitimate reign of the enemy. And D-Day was Bethlehem. The Bible says in 1 John 3, the Son of God came for this purpose. To destroy the devil's work. And Satan recognized the threat immediately. That's why in John's Revelation, chapter 12, he pictures a woman about to give birth and a red dragon is right there at the moment of birth because his intent was to kill that baby as soon as he was born. But the baby was spared by God because God knew what the enemy was up to. And that's exactly what happened in the story. It says in Matthew 2, verse 13, that when the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night, and he left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. By the way, side note, it's worth remembering that baby Jesus was once a refugee and an immigrant that God sent to another country to escape a tyrant. 
That's part of our story. Because God was going to protect the real king from the plots of all the fake kings. And so you look in the Gospels, and there are repeated attempts on the life of Jesus, and every one of them is frustrated. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And throughout the story, you never see the enemy ever successfully thwart the rule of the real king. No demon ever says to Jesus, you can't make me. Just the opposite. They knew their evil tyrant's rule was short-lived. There's an amazing story in Matthew 8 where two men have these demons and they rush up when they see Jesus and they say, what do you want with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? The enemy knew he's the real king. And his dominion is going to be established. They knew they were in the presence of a king who would never be outranked, never be undermined, never be overthrown. And this was the heart of the preaching of Jesus. Enter the kingdom. Repent for the good news is here. The kingdom's come. This is the message of over Christmas that you can come under the reign of the real king. And this is good news, but it takes faith. And I'll tell you why. Because we still live in the days of Herod. We still live in a day when the fake kings seem to have all the power and they demand our allegiance. And Christmas calls us to ignore the bluster of the enemy. And so a lot of you recognize the name of John McCain, a senator who once ran for president. And most of you probably know that he was for some years a POW during the Vietnam conflict. And he writes that his lowest moment of imprisonment was Christmas Eve, 1969. He had experienced torture, He's in solitary confinement. And the North Vietnamese are playing the song, I'll be home for Christmas, over the speakers. And then he heard it. You see, the the American prisoners had developed a little tapping code to send signals to each other. And on the wall of the other side of his cell was a Marine named Ernie Bruce, who had been in prison four years longer than John. And the message was, someday we'll all be home for Christmas. God bless America. And just a short little message. But he said it changed everything. It reminded him that Christmas is not a time for despair. It's a time for hope. Christmas is the declaration that the king is going to make things right. That the world that is, is not the world that will be. His dominion is going to be established. And all the tyrannies of this present life are temporary. Jesus is the word. 
And Jesus will have the last word. Because when Jesus comes, the battle for who rules is over. I told you that twice Matthew made the point of calling Herod king. But it's interesting to me that when the wise men finally reached the baby and they worship him, Herod is never called king again. Because when you bow before the real king, all fake kings get exposed. And someday, every knee will bow. It may be willingly, it may be joyfully, it may be begrudgingly. But when the king returns, there will be no debate who's in charge. It's going to look something like this, according to John in Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, Jesus was king before he was savior. And he will be king after. There is no more saving to do. The powers that be will be the powers that were. And the whole universe will declare the church's only creed. Jesus is Lord. When young Queen Victoria ascended the throne... She went, as was custom for royalty, to hear Handel's brilliant Messiah. She sat in her special uh, seat and was instructed that royalty does not stand with the rest of the audience when the hallelujah chorus begins. So when that moment came and the audience stood, the young queen stayed seated, but it wasn't easy. When they sang about his omnipotence, she fidgeted. But then they got to that brilliant line. King of kings and Lord of lords. And the young queen stood up and she bowed her head. As if to say, I put my crown at the feet of the true sovereign. Someday, all will bow. But wise people... Don't wait. They do it now. I'd like to ask you to bow, please. I'd like you to take a moment. I'll finish the prayer, but I'd like you to start it. I'd like you just to acknowledge the kingship of Jesus. And have the courage, if there's a part of your life where he needs to take over, to confess it. And let him overrule that area where you struggle for self-sovereignty. Do that, please.
Lord Jesus, we declare that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Always have been, always will be. Come quickly. Amen. So let me ask you to stand. If you're on our prayer team upstairs or down, would you take your places, please? We are going to acknowledge the dominion of Jesus. There is no power in hell. There's no scheme of man that can frustrate his intention and his purpose. So as we worship him, you please come and let us minister to you today.